This is an RIP to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the lawyer and law professor turned Supreme Court justice turned feminist pop culture icon. She personified the idea of dying for one's cause. She could have retired and spent her last years doing three-pound bicep curls in a flat overlooking her native Brooklyn. Instead, she stuck around to safeguard the precious protections she could win for us on the basis of our sex, most importantly, abortion. No icon is a perfect person making all the perfect decisions, but let's never forget how she went down swinging. May her memory be a blessing. women talking shit all right so what are we getting into this week it's a spoiler alert we are talking all about media that we have been watching we are examining it we are looking at the controversy uh and uh being just you know fangirls and nerds Definitely. So we are offering spoiler. This is a spoiler alert for the following cuties, Lovecraft Country, and I May Destroy You. Oh, I May Destroy You is so good. It is amazing. Amazing. But <laughs> all right. First up, well, certainly uh, woman world has definitely been dealt a blow uh, in the last couple of days with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh man, and that that's just tough. And I I'll just say this, it's like you know you're fucked if the rights of a significant group of people are waged in the balance because of one person. That, you know, all of our checks and balances shouldn't rely on one person. And yet and, it did, and yet and it, it does. And the fact that she recognized that and was able to push on is just amazing. It really is amazing. And, you know, it's it's an incredible thing for, for someone to really give themselves to a cause like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, she was working out. She was, you know, doing her, her exercises. And she just became an icon for that reason because she practiced what she preached. She did what she needed to do. And uh, it's just a bummer that she couldn't hold out two more months. And I know that she wanted to. But you know what? Indeed. She lasted as long as she did. And that's really admirable. Yes, indeed it is. Indeed. But she will be definitely missed but we will continue to fight on in her honor. Yep. And uh, let's just hope that Mitch McConnell isn't successful in uh, getting the the right to replace. I hate that duplicitous motherfucker. I swear to God. It's just (laughs) like, and I, and, and I applaud the media for immediately refreshing the public's mind about 
his statements when Obama was trying to fill the Supreme Court seat and how he drug his feet and how he actually wears it as a badge of honor to, you know, have stalled Obama placing a Supreme Court justice at the end of an election and all of that hoo-ha. And to now see that complete about face and him wanting to immediately, I mean, it wasn't an hour before we had heard the news about her passing before Mitch McConnell was tweeting that they were going to go ahead and go forth with a uh, Supreme Court placement. And, you know, I really thought it was going to be Trump who was going to be the one tweeting his Supreme Court pick the next morning. But Agreed, no, it was Mitch McConnell. <laughs> I I mean, I guess being a giant douchebag is just, it's it's the default position. And, and what... And what gets me is that in his election, he is currently leading 12 points uh, against his Democratic challenger, Amy McGrath. So it, it, it's just disheartening that the folks of Kentucky continue to vote for this duplicitous scumbag is unreal. I mean, like think about it if this were somebody that were in your life like i remember when my dad croaked it was a week to the day almost to the hour until discover tried to collect debts on his credit card and i was so pissed that they couldn't wait longer than a week after he died after i just put him in the ground to start collecting the like 650 dollars that he had in his account it was like disgusting and I mean, can it get worse? Oh, yes, it did. Mitch McConnell just got worse. Yeah, he did. He did. But again, I, I felt the same way. I expected to hear that news from Trump himself with that level of or unlevel of tact. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the negative levels of tact. Yes. <laughs> but definitely. So let's start cuties let's talk about the controversy that we've seen over the last week with that and oh, just the lord it was i hate the fact that this movie managed to get caught up in the QAnon conspiracy land it's just i i don't get how this is happening i don't get how this conspiracy these group of people are able to infiltrate so many critiques on social life especially revolving around pedophilia can i just ask you a question jamay i'm gonna ask you the same question i've been asking every single woman who has a non-opinion or non-critique because i'm not calling it critiques um jamay have you seen the whole entire movie yes i have seen the whole entire movie and i respect your analysis oh you liked it I liked it. I liked it. I thought it was an authentic, refreshing look at girlhood and just how difficult and awkward that looks. And it offered a lot of views that we really should be discussing. I mean, like the clash between religion and your secular life, the clash of being a girl transitioning into a young woman and all of that. And I I swear, do does everybody forget what how awkward it was during those years and what that looked like as you try 
on different adult things to do? You know, that's a really good point. And when I watched the film, one of the first things that I started thinking about was how cringy my young adulthood was. Um, those are years that I don't know if I just forgot because I'm old or if I tried to forget. Uh, but I mean, those are the days when I was listening to salt and pepper and I knew all the words to shoop. Mm. And so, so my mother would turn the radio station, but I'll go home and listen to my, listen cassette to tape, it. you know, with my headphones on and I can still do most of the lyrics badly. Um, <laughs> You know, it was when, you know, I I, I mostly wore T-shirts and jeans to school, but there was a, a Girl Scout square dancing and I tucked in my shirt and my little boobs stood out and I was like, ooh, I'm sexy. And also I'm like 10. And my mother was like, no, 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 no. no, no <laughs> you no, go no. and change immediately. Not what we're going to do. So, yeah. And, and with me, when I was 12, the the Uncle Luke song, Do the Brown, had just come out. That house song. And I remember staying up until midnight to watch that video and then doing the twerk videos Stop. or doing Everybody the moves the I saw in the video in the mirror trying to twerk. And I was doing this at 12. I'm 40 now. So to see these same age group of women sitting here yelling like, oh my God, that is the absolute, oh, oh, the pearl clutching. The pearl clutching is making me nauseous because it's not allowing us to see exactly what the director was showing us. Just how hard it is to maneuver what society is telling you to do because, okay, these, if you're not familiar with what the story is, it's an 11 year old uh, Muslim girl whose father takes on a second wife and the mother gets so involved in her, de her, de uh, her depression with her husband taking on a second wife without her consultation that she becomes, you know, uninvolved and just kind of wallowing in her depression because she looks at herself as a failure. And the girl is being, and the girl's name is Ami and she's being taken care of by an aunt in the family and the aunt is a very traditionally muslim woman and all of the values that 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 comes with that so much so that ami begins her period and it was a surprise to ami but the auntie came and she comforted ami and told her the story of when she started her period and how only a couple of years later she was married to a man so i and <laughs> And then okay, the could you imagine the horror? <laughs> exactly. Right. And while all of this is going on in her home outside, she's trying to seek acceptance from her peers. And her peer group is a group of girls who are uh, competing in a local talent competition and they plan on dancing. And as they're developing their choreography, they're using social media and videos to help them with this choreography. And they also receive acceptance from the judges and other outside adult influences that, oh, this is amazing. This looks great. And even as Ami gets further and further into the, you know, mimicking the dance moves and mimicking the makeup and the dress that she sees online, even her, she's, accept she's receiving more and more acceptance. And I think that that is what the director was highlighting you know, just that uncomfortable transition into wanting to be accepted by your peers and wanting to be accepted by your family group and receive support from there. So I, I was just upset at the level of, 
uh, critique because it was not critique. It was just rabid foaming at the mouth. This is pedophilia. This director is just promoting pedophiles and we won't stand for it type shit from people that didn't even watch the fucking movie. No. And, and here's the thing. What is the worst thing that could happen from watching a controversial film? I mean, are people afraid that they're going to watch 90 minutes of actual child pornography? Because no, no. they're not watching 90 minutes of actual child pornography. They're watching 90 minutes of a story of an 11 year old navigating a hypersexualized world where she has to figure out you know, where she stands and she's rebelling against the limitations of her culture. And, and that's one of the, the things of the film that it's, it's talking about how she rebels. Um, and in the end, ultimately talking about how she, she needs to find herself outside of both of these stereotypes of what a woman is supposed to be. And I think that it's, it's, I, I've never seen women who are supposedly intellectual and analytical fight so hard to not understand or even watch the source material. Right. I mean, what's the deal with not having informed opinions, you know, cause there's yeah. a lot to examine in this film. Like take, for example, that Ami uh, just moved to the area. The film opens with them entering into the apartment and there's a curious room that is uncleaned that we later find out is supposed to be for uh, the husband's second wife. Um, or also, you know, noting that she doesn't really have any friends in her school environment. And the first person that she meets, Angelica, who is wearing leather pants and is ironing her hair, is, is the first girl that she has any type of contact with in this situation. Um, consider that she's an immigrant girl. Consider that she's, she speaks more than one language. Um, you know, students, or I, I should say students, I mean, I'm a teacher and I'm familiar with immigrant, immigrant children because I work with them. Um, but coming into a new school environment, you're marginalized, mm -hmm. uh, especially as an immigrant, especially as a person who speaks another language, um, you're marginalized. And so finding ways of, of seeking acceptance is, is about survival. It's about self-esteem. It's about just finding yourself and fitting in, um, so she experimented with something that um, I think a lot of kids experiment with. And, you know, that's the cringy part about it, because we all kind of experimented with that. Right. And it is a little disturbing to see it on screen presented in such a way, because I'm not going to lie. There were parts of the film that made me feel very uncomfortable. It yeah. made me think, damn, what is the point of this? Right. But I think... It and that Go was ahead. literally the end of the film where they were doing the final dance competition. And they really, we got to see all of the choreography that they had been practicing put together. And it was like, holy crap, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, there was also an earlier scene where they were filming themselves mm -hmm. and it was, that scene was shot in the style of, you know, the typical hypersexualized exploitative dance, like hip hop video. And, and that scene made me very uncomfortable in particular. And I have to wonder what was her intention for, for filming it that way. And I can only imagine that it was to give people that understanding of discomfort. Like here's these little girls, they're acting the way that we want we seem to want and we seem to consume women acting in popular media. Like, right. 
those types of dances get millions of hits. They get millions of dollars. And so why is there such a shock that little girls emulate this and then somebody went to make a film to show you that your little girls are emulating this? Because right. the absence of parental um, influence is is significant in the film. Yes. Because the parents aren't around. So you have to make that logical leap. Oh, darn, my kids are doing this and I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I will, I will give the mom a solid in the end of the movie where the auntie basically comes for Ami when she sees her in her dance getup and calls her all types of whores and things like that. And the mom was like, no, you will not speak to my child like that. So it made me feel, it, it, to me, it showed that, okay, there is going to be like a bridge of where the mother is going to come in and be like, okay, and be a point of influence for her daughter and to kind of guide her through all of this stuff instead of being, you know, stuck in your own world. And that's what you navigate as a mom too. You know, we have our own shit, you know, and then our kids, they have their shit. So it's, I, I thought it was, a, it showed a lot of things that we should be talking about as women and women raising girls. And yeah. it was completely glossed over because of, somebody wanted to scream that this was pedophilia i just i'm disgusted and where's this smoke for like Pornhub? i mean <laughs> they're actually doing this shit the shit that y'all screaming about and trying to piece together clips and stuff about Pornhub is actually doing and making billions off of and i i don't see the same level of energy i really don't and then too the same women that are saying oh i won't watch the movie i won't watch the film but will happily share images that they believe are porn, that they honestly believe are child porn. But you won't watch the whole movie, but you have no problem sharing the images. What's wrong yeah, with that? Yeah, that's a little strange, isn't it? I mean, if it is pornography, why wouldn't you then, I don't know, report it to the FBI? Right. I mean, I, and there is there is that that irony, that twist. But I, I don't want to to discount any credence for critiques of the film. It's just that the good critiques, the good negative critiques are like few and far between yeah. because there's there's so much of like a knee jerk foaming at the mouth as opposed to an in-depth analysis. And, you know, there have there have been a handful of analyses. There was an article by Natalia Vince um, from the organization Philia in the UK and some of their critiques involved uh, some really very important points. For example, like you talked about when the mother stands up to auntie and she stands up for Ami and, you know, tells her not to call her a whore. Um, she says that in English, French rather. She doesn't say it in their native language, which right. is a curious choice. It, 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 and the author, uh, Vince, tries to suggest that that comes from uh, propagating an idea that, you know, leading into being part of French society is the empowering thing that uh, getting rid of your home culture is the empowering thing. Um, that there is a subtle propaganda of like being like super sexual as a means of empowerment without enough critique of it necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, that the, the teen, like the teenage, there's characters, there's teenage boys in the film that like refuse their advances because they're too young, but that's not necessarily realistic. Um, it also got a lot of uh, state support from France. 
um, which suggests that there might have been some tricky things happening with the way that it was edited and written and funded. And all of these are really good critiques. Also, right. that France has a history of um, not being so kind to Muslim women. And so the film ends up being propaganda for the emancipation of Muslim women into French society, which will still sexualize them in, you know, in the other direction. Uh, uh, and so that it, she suggests that it's an incomplete structural analysis. And I think that she makes some really good points about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not seeing these critiques no, in, in woman worlds where the conversation is happening. Um, I see an absence of that level of analysis. All I see is, are you telling me to watch porn so that yeah. I know it's porn, which is hyperbolic bullshit? It is. It is. And and that's that's what's the, the, the whole dismaying thing about this whole thing. I mean, even the mother goes on a journey. I, I mean, she is is under the thumb of her auntie who is is representing the culture that from which she comes they're going to church they're going to like prayer sessions and it's not quite church it's um they're they're sitting together i don't know if it's um I w that looked more like a bible study so a quran kind of. study whatever that would be be called or like a women's masjid which is you know the women's where women of in islam will go and they'll pray together because the sexes are segregated mm -hmm. um but like they were talking about how the body and the flesh is in and of itself sinful and how there are more women yes. in hell because of that. And this is what Ami is taking in and which is where she's rebelling from. Yeah. And then at one point later on, she's there, she's under her, like, she's got, she's got a hijab on or not a hijab. It was like more of like a full cover, like a head burka situation. And she's under there with her phone watching hip hop videos that were even more exploitative than the other girls had showed her. Mm -hmm. or that she had to or Ami herself had to push herself beyond um what even her friends thought was normal just so that they would think right. she was cool and I was that kid if the other kids were saying this curse word I said the worst curse the word. Worst if, word if these kids were talking about sex I was more gross about sex and and I did that because I wanted people to think I was funny or to push the boundaries. And because I also was growing up around that kind of attitude that was representative of my environment. Mm -hmm. So sitting there talking dirty at 11 years old about things that you have no idea about so that people will look at you and think that you're cool. That's literally Ami's story. That's yeah. girlhood. There you go. Boom. You know, but also well, I was talking about the mother a moment ago that she went on her own journey and underneath it all, she she had to figure out what she wanted for her daughter. And I mean, Auntie was so convinced that Ami had some sort of demon that they had a priest come. They made Ami do like a like a, a ceremony of some type where they were like dousing her in water and she was trying to dance it off. And even that, I have to admit, the, the filming of that was a little exploitative. She was wearing these little shorts. It was all butt. Yes. It was right and, and it, it felt like it felt like the director was trying to show that internal conflict between the religion aspect and versus what she's been consuming with the hip-hop videos and the dancing and just trying to i don't know a channel of how to figure all of this out that's what i felt that the director was trying to go for in the it. scene yeah mm -hmm. i mean for for me it looked like she was just doing a lot of like it was like shimmying and shaking. It almost reminded me a little bit of like Pentecostals. Oh, but, yeah. Right? 
But at the same time, it also reminded me of African dance. And, you know, having seen students do African dance, it can be interpreted as sexual, even though they don't see it that way. But that's that's the outsider opinion. And that's why people need to understand there is a cultural context to this, you know, that can change your opinion of it. Um, But nonetheless, I mean, the mother goes on her own journey of being liberated and then not fully liberated, but understanding like, right understanding her daughter is a person and her daughter is navigating something that's so hard and that for her it's so hard and you remember that scene where the priest comes in and says you know you can leave your husband if you want to if you, you can if this is family. too hard yes and you know that, and that i thought it was highly progressive that he also said that this child is not possessed with demons yeah i thought that that was like okay good because damn can you imagine if that that guy came in there and said she was possessed by demons. Jesus. That was what I was afraid of. Me too. Right. But my only real critique of that was that it was a man that came in and gave her that permission. Yeah. I know. That is a little bit of a bummer, but at the same time, it did open up the, you know, um, the mom, I believe her name was Mariam to, to give her daughter a little leeway and say, all right, you know what? I'm going to treat you like a real woman. Now I'm going to mm-hmm. give you a choice. Do you want to go to this wedding or not? Yeah. And she didn't, and you I, know, yeah, definitely. And so when we talk about this being a coming of coming of age film, like there it is, there's a mother treating a child like they they're a person. Yeah, and that's really important because kids are people. You know, they are. They are. I mean, are. we seem to lose sight of that. It's true. I mean, you have a daughter around that age, right? Yes, my daughter is twelve, and we did. We watched Cuties together, and she had commented as we were watching the film that she felt called out. <laughs> so it was like, and um, I actually asked her if she wanted to provide like a little um, snippet of a recording of her giving her opinion about the the film, but she didn't want to, so that's okay. Oh. So I'll paraphrase Maddie, and um. Yeah, she she felt that it was definitely a show of that struggle she's going through right now, you know, coming from adolescence and stepping your foot over into adulthood. And we seem to lose sight, like you said, that kids are little people. They're just growing up. So they're going to be looking at us and what we do and what we praise and what we uh, give accolades for. They soak this shit in. They're, they're taking it all in, and we seem to lose sight of that. I don't know why, but we do. I also think that there is like this authoritarian streak among some of these people who are also parents. You know, I'm on the other side of that because I'm an educator. And, you know, we we can see where the kid or the student, as it were, becomes you know, a a more thoughtful, more capable, more intelligent person when they're given the opportunity to have a voice and have an analysis of their own because they are young people and they do form opinions. And even if those opinions aren't fully formed and they're not fully informed, nonetheless, this is a process of developing that skill. And if kids don't have the opportunity to examine that and to have a voice in in their own choices then it it you end up with a worse rebellion than you would otherwise you know and so that's why i know that this is not true of every school but at least where i work the goal is to really give choice you know students a choice 
in what they do and what's in their education. Um, Otherwise, why, why would they buy in if they feel like they're just under control? And that's something that's really important to, to look at in this film. Ami is not a character who feels like she has a say in her life. And the result is she steps out. She decides to do something that is not in her life, Mm -hmm. you know? And we know that choice is not liberation. Choice does not eradicate male supremacy. But in terms of the human aspect of of what it is to be a person, what it is to be a young person, is very important important for a person to feel like they're able to ha- you know control their own destiny. And right. Auntie took that away from her. Auntie yes. tried to take that away when she said, "Oh, you'll be shrouded in white and given away to a husband in a couple of years too." At what fourteen years old? Get out of here. Yep, exactly. It's like, how do you, how do you digest that? Right. Definitely. But moving on. So I like to think you want to go Lovecraft country. You want to go, I may destroy you. I may destroy you. Let's do the, I may destroy you. So here's, here's our artless segue into I may destroy you. I actually think that Arabella is kind of like what what Ami might grow up into if given a choice. Ah. I feel like Ami is like young Arabella. Because Arabella in I May Destroy You is also uh, a person who is very adventurous, um, is not, doesn't style herself in a sexual way, but is a very sexually open and engaging person. She's adventurous. She does drugs. Um, Anyway, continue. Oh yeah, definitely. I loved this series. Um, I May Destroy You is a series that premiered on HBO earlier this year. Um, It's written by Michaela Cohen and she also did a show on Netflix called I, uh, Chewing gum. Chewing gum. That's what it was. Chewing gum. And how the shows are connected is the I May Destroy You is loosely based off an incident that happened to her while she was writing Chewing Gum. While she was writing the third season for Chewing Gum, trying to get it in under the deadline, she went out with friends and was sexually or her had her drink spiked and was sexually assaulted by two men. So um, needless to say, this is the showing of how she was able to pull herself together and, you know, move on with life after this assault. So, and I think that this move, this, this uh, show, or the show brilliantly illustrated a lot of nuances that kind of get swept up under the rug when we talk about sexual assault. Right. I I think that it did a wonderful job. First, it told the story in a really nonlinear format, which I really adore that because it it mm-hmm. gave um, Michaela Cole a, an opportunity to tell a story that uh, that re- that has reveals that reveals parts of her history and reveals parts of her characterization um, in ways that you don't expect right. and. You know, the it really gives her character and all of the characters a lot of layers. Um, and also in in having her character be a victim of rape, her character is not a stereotype. First off, she's not a perfect victim, which is so important, you know, because rape is complicated. 
and victims are complicated. And so she's by no means a perfect, perfect victim. And in, in, she's also by no means a perfect person and her reactions to it and the way that she treats others around it uh, is complicated by her experience. Uh, and then she also has to face up to that because at one point, for example, you know, she finds out that her friend was also sexually assaulted, well, which I mean, by the way, it shows what it, what happens when a male is sexually assaulted by another male and how the cops treat that, which yes. is pathetically. That was heartbreaking. Cause I mean, that cop just acted like dude wasn't even talking like, okay, what are you saying? You right. Know, like, really yeah that was heartbreaking and then how Kwame completely internalized you know just all of it to the point where he felt like he needed to seek a safe space within women I thought this show just did a lot in regards of showing the distinct the distinct line between liberation sexual liberation and sexual exploitation because in the way that Kwame uh, the way that Kwame decided that, oh, well, I, since I've been assaulted by a man, I need a safe space. So I'm going to go to women and date a woman to see if that makes me feel better, if I feel safe or what have you. And, and that he didn't disclose to the woman that he was gay. Kwame knew he was gay and instead, you know, didn't say anything to this lady and had chose to hold on to that information until after they had uh, had sex with one another and the woman was understandably pissed. Right. And she was pissed because the only way, the only reason she found out was because she made a homophobic slur. She said the F word. And no, of course, not knowing that Kwame's a gay man. And she says this, she's like, you know, had I known, I wouldn't have said that. Not saying that that makes it any better. But it kind of takes away that consent of, okay, well, I didn't know that you were, so I wouldn't have said that or not saying it's right, but I could see where she was coming from. Right. I mean, I also think that it was really interesting what her response was, because I don't know. I think the character's name was Nilifer, which of all the weird British names, Nilifer. Hello, Nilifer. But she she had a strange reaction because she was really upset and felt like she was assaulted. But I can't say that I would feel the same thing in her in her situation. I mean, you're consenting to sex with a person, Correct. not with a person's sexual identity. And I get that there's some people who would want full disclosure so that they can understand who they're sleeping with and make an informed choice. There's plenty of women who would not want to sleep with a bisexual male. There's plenty of lesbians who would not want to sleep with a bisexual female. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that it's wrong to, to want that, but at the same time, you don't know everybody's backstory when you're having sex with them. You know, would you, would you say the same about like, well, I don't want to sleep with somebody who has consented to sex with a drug addict, but you don't know a, a person's, previous sexual history right. well i mean what if you've done weird kinky shit like at at some point it's she i felt like it was a little bit overwrought nonetheless it doesn't mean that there wasn't a lie there there absolutely was but does right. that make it a sexual assault i don't think i don't think so 
No. No. It it, it just it, it it definitely eroded the consent aspect of it as far as her making an informed choice, but as far as assault, I don't believe so either. And I I that's what I really enjoyed about this series and how some situations were presented in order for us to kind of run it through our throw run it through another lens, you know? Right. Um, I also think that uh, one person that we could really talk about is Terry. Oh, Terry. So Terry is, and we haven't even gotten into talking about Arabelle yet, but right. we'll talk about Terry because Terry is Arabelle's best friend, uh, is a young actress and goes along with both Kwame and Arabella on their journeys as they're dealing with, you know, the sexual violence that both of them have experienced. And she is, first off, she is the best friend in the whole wide world. Hands down. She is like, like we need to have a best friend award and we'll call it the Terry award because she is, is absolutely the, the friend that we all wish that we had the ride or die you know, I'll yes. come with you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm here for you, best friend. Yes, yes, she is. What do you need me to do? Right. And and I think that her story is interesting because uh, first off, she's there to help navigate these crises that the others are going to going through. But she kind of has to explore her own experience of being exploited. She and and she's exploited in a number of ways. She was involved in a threesome that she thought happened organically and then later realizes that two men had planned to both meet up with her in the and bar, seduce her and then have sex with her together. And mm -hmm. so she thought this was her time of being, you know, stepping outside of the box. Being spontaneous and, right? you know, living life to the fullest and carpe diem. And, yeah. Right. And she finds out towards the end, you know, she always remembered that the two men left together and that was really strange to her. And she realizes later on that, no, they were in there together, that they, right. they played a game on her. Um, does that, again, impact how she views the sexual experience? It's complicated. She could see that as eroding consent, much like Nilifer did with Kwame. Right. But also she had this whole entire experience and nobody pushed her into it. She wasn't drugged like no. Arabella was. She wasn't held down like Kwame was. And um, she found the experience liberating. She enjoyed it. Very much. But what was also exploitative, and this is one of the great things about the show, what was also exploitative was the industry that she was in. The industry, the same industry that makes Arabella spokesperson for vegan food, where she then rebels and goes and eats chicken eats on chicken. Instagram. That was <laughs> fucking hilarious, by the way. She, that was she, so funny. She <laughs> finds out, Arabella finds out that she, the, the, the woman who recruited her, which was her rape crisis counselor, was paid money and paid extra because she was black and uh and found out that they were specifically looking to market to black people to through black her people. and so she was just like fuck you and she had a whole plate of fried chicken and destroyed <laughs> destroyed that vision of her being a super healthy vegan just to just to say a big fuck you <laughs> 
The just level the, of petty, I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. I can't get enough. Just the same as she did with the Stealther, which we'll Ooh, talk about shortly because yes. we don't want to forget that. Uh, but Terry, at the beginning, goes on an interview where she is asked, what is the most... Um, the the most what was i forget the term that they use or the most most liberating or most free you've been that's what prompted her thoughts when she went to italy with arabella you know do i need to get out there sexually and it was prompted by that interviewer's question that's actually see that's one of the things about the the atypical storytelling because it's non-linear the threesome happened long before the interview when you think about it so terry went into that interview was asked that question didn't know how to answer and then once she got like off the stage and she was about to leave it was almost like a hand on doorknob moment she's like by the way i had a threesome and and right right. and the interviewers were like oh okay thank you oh they were but they were also exploiting her. They were mining her for her experiences to see if she is just the liberated type of chick that they could get on board, which is to say they want more of that, mm. which is they want more of women who are having experiences where c- there's questions about consent that we don't even talk about. Mm-hmm. And then Agreed. not to mention, before we even get to the whole big thing with Biagio and, and oh. Arabella's relationship and the drugs. Let's talk about the stealthing. Oh, yes. And mind you, this is Arabella's first sexual experience after the assault. Right. So, and to me, it felt the way that she went into it, it felt really rushed because it felt like she was trying to erase what happened to her by immediately getting involved sexually with someone right it's like let's get back to normal let's you know real quick real quick in a hurry you you know know. what this that didn't even happen i just life needs to go on and then what happens is she finds the condom on the ground and he you know took it off and she he was like okay well whatever it was a mistake and then listening to podcasts so important to listen to women when we speak about these experiences she listens to a podcast and finds out that uh he was saying all of the things that men say when they're stealthing Mm. that it was strategic uh that it was intentional and that makes it rape yep and she totally and instead of going to the police about him she outed him in front of everybody they were both set to present an award and he was there he was there as well and she just totally aired him out and i think what also it wasn't the podcast too wasn't it another uh co-worker or colleague that had given her a warning about oh him? yes yes mm-hmm. someone else told told her that yeah something about i don't even remember because it, it's too much to watch you have to watch it it's a great um, show it is a really great show but she like did the thing that we wish we could all do. Like all the publishers and everybody from a publishing company were there. And she was just like, what, what was his name again? Zane is a rapist. Rapist. It was like, oh, and of course it was like a flashbang went off in the room and everybody is stoned silent. And Zane is trying to just leak out of the room. Like really just fold into the background, trying to get out of there. 
and he's being stared down by, by the crowd and he eventually makes his way out of the theater and he shows up at the end of the series and it was an interesting way that he showed up right i don't know do you want to spoil it well we did warn for spoilers this okay need the spoiler so so let's rewind a bit and talk about arabelle's journey yes so so this happens at the end of the first episode she thought she was going to go out for an hour she sets herself a timer she runs out to meet her friends so that her friend can have a uh, can cheat on his wife, which is a whole other side story, and uh, so she has like a shot and a bump of coke, and is just out there and dancing and having a good time. And before you know it, boom, she's waking up and just clamoring to get out of the bathroom of a bar, and it's nowhere near where she was, and she has no idea what's happening. Right. Um, all she knows is that she ends up back, back at her home. apartment working and, on her script that she said she was going to do and she can't remember writing any of what she wrote right completely body in shock ends up where her publishers are like uncomfortable smiles as she's like staring at them and they're like this doesn't really make any type of sense mm -hmm. and, and she started bleeding from the crown right. on her head it was just a mess and she's still as this is going on trying to piece together what's going on that was the description of like the worst nightmare i have ever had just that whole just coming to as you're in the middle of something and you have no knowledge of how you got there or what's going on around you so scary right i mean absolutely utterly horrifying so what follows is really her adventure in trying to navigate life after that and sorting out the romantic affection she has for Ital her Italian drug dealer, non-boyfriend, Biagio, um, mm. who in his own way, I feel, was exploiting her for cocaine because she was living with him and snorting coke and paying him with all of her advance money for the next book that she was writing. Yep. To the, point where, to the point where she ended up without money because no money. she had no money left. Um, and 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 also to add validity to that theory when she went back to him and told her that she didn't do drugs or anything and she'd stopped smoking and all of that that seemed to be like the cutoff for him right she was she was looking for him to care about her and his attitude toward her changed as, as soon as she said that she had cleaned up which had happened long after the incident and biagio didn't really want to be a part of investigating anything and but he what? had to get his semen checked and he was pissed about that and biagio had blamed her like why didn't you watch your your drink Great, how yep. could you let this happen to you yep. so like i mean the worst of victim blaming from the person that she thought she had feelings for who was really just a douchebag yep. and he was a douchebag from the start and Man. it just goes to show that she really wasn't paying attention to that aspect of him right agreed agreed so she flies back to italy and he locks her out of the house and pulls a gun on her at one point because she won't leave um, she ends up back in her apartment. She's broke. She's dropped by her agent. She's dropped by her publisher because she hasn't finished the draft that that wasn't finished before she was raped. 
And and then at the end of it, she has to sort through all of the different things. Like she's been going to the same bar trying to find trying out to. who did it since it happened. And the story is like a year later. Yeah. You know? And so she, the ending of it, oh my God, there's like- I was <sighs> on such a roller coaster with the end. because And being able to see all of those what if scenarios to me was cathartic because we all, when something bad happens to us, we have these scenarios that run through our heads. Me, I, it took me a minute to realize what they were doing. And that's what we were seeing because I was like, oh hell no what i know because the first one is like a rape revenge fantasy yeah and, and i'm like a... did she really just kill that dude and shut right? him up on her bed and <laughs> to write her book? My there's, girl. A, there's <laughs> a body there now and and you know because who is the the blonde woman who was who was helping them out oh, and oh, what is her name um uh, the, um rape counselor yeah oh, i forget her name is stephanie name. or something mm -hmm. i completely forget but like 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 the three of them are there and there's there's actually a really awesome picture of arabella terry and the blonde rape counselor um who is in and of herself theodora theodora, theodora. Mm -hmm. Who, by the way, apparently had some severely racist attitudes in high, high school, school, but they kind of like forgave her, I suppose, because she was herself exploited and she was supportive of Arabelle. Yeah, we never really got like the full explanation, not explanation, but the full Theodora Theodora's path. Like what was her motivation for considering what she was like in high school with the falsely accusing the boy of rape to being a rape crisis counselor. Well, How she had that... been, when you oh, think about well, it, she had been exploited. She was exploited by her mother in yep. order to, for her mother to retain full custody of her. She had her daughter, Theodora, lie to the courts stating that she was sexually molested. And the right. courts gave her mom full custody and her mom for all intents and purposes were just completely neglectful. And yeah. Right. She, yes, you're right. You're right. And that not only that, but the boy that she was sleeping with basically treated her like a prostitute. Taking the picture. Cause she taking was the picture and then giving her money and or offering her money if i recall keep, correctly giving her money to keep cool about him taking a picture of her while they right. had sex right so so she's been in and out with that on her own um i mean we talk about a kid who is is forced to lie about sexual abuse i can't imagine what kind of memories false memories that that could cause you know shit that could fuck with you and then, um, I don't know, maybe it was just a matter of exploring her own experiences that kind of led to her mea culpa, you know, in when, cause she was the one who revealed to Arabella that, that she had, ex she got gotten extra money for recruiting her. Right. You know? So, I mean, is that to say that she changed and that she could become a better person? Is that what Michaela Cole wanted to illustrate? Possibly. Maybe she wanted to see an end game to, you know, well, you know, people learn and people can get better. And I also think that that was her perspective uh, in her second end of series uh, rape revenge fantasy when 
the rapist breaks down and she's consoling him and empathetic towards him. Yes, and totally understanding when he was repeating the same thing that his rapist had said to him and she completely understood why and his confession, including liking all types of rape and all of that. And I was just like, what in the world are they right. doing? What? Right. <laughs> it was so weird. I'm like, no, no, no. Go back. And then I was like, are we having a doctor who moment here? What is going on? And then, and then it clicked to me like, oh, okay. She's still sitting out on the patio and all of this is going through her head renumerating just going over this over and over you know should she go to the bar what would happen if you go to the bar and her attempting to slay your demons you know deal with your demons and i mean she really deals with it in three ways in those three vignettes and the third one being a flip of all of the gender roles because you have terry sitting down and the rape accomplice is over there giving her a lap dance to distract well Uh, she takes david home and is the top and penetrates him yes um definitely and i was like what What i know okay i get it i get it all of it is flipped okay gotcha that's one of the great things about michaela cole because she can bring things to the level of the absurd Mm. that she she doesn't mind doing things that are weird and making things that are funny about a topic that shouldn't necessarily be funny. funny. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, even just the way that she can contort her face and, and her smiles and her appearance. It's very all, expressive, very, very expressive lady, you know, she's magical. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also just think that it's an incredible thing for this woman as a creator to tell her story in such a way and to examine it from all sides. And I read an article in Vulture where she called this process of going through all those vignettes, uh, radical empathy. Mm-hmm. She, she considered it some sort of radical thing for her to examine what it was like from her rapist's perspective and grant him some level of empathy. Not to say that I, I necessarily agree with that concept, um, nor should I do. I feel that anybody should have to do that. I mean, that's, but that's, that's a level of emotional maturity that for her was part of her healing. And she had said that once she was able to write that scene and find empathy for that character, that it allowed her to, to let it go. And that was her healing process too. And I have to wonder if that sense of radical empathy also uh, expands to the Theodora character and also expands to the experiences of Kwame and of Terry, that she's really trying to see all of these different angles. I mean, even her cousin who, you know, was Cheater McCheater. Oh, um, yes. (laughs) You know, uh, but it was a really satisfying show and um, just a really, really good watch. And I really highly recommend it. Yes. Five stars. Definitely. For sure. Definitely. And, and it totally because I was a chewing gum fan and I was eagerly awaiting season three. I am happy for this gift that she gave to us. Thank you so much, Michaela. Hands down. 
for sure. And oh, we we didn't even get into talking about the structural analysis that happens on that show because she's criticizing industries, she's criticizing marketing, she criticizes oh, yeah. social media, using her social media as therapy. And that it fucked shit. her up. Mm-hmm. It fucked her up because she was over there acting like one person on social media and then forgetting everybody else in her whole entire real life, not realizing that she was becoming a shell of herself in the process and that she had it to delete it. But she was criticizing that. Like there was a lot of really, really good shit that was happening on that show. Um, Agree. Yeah. <sighs> Agree. So get HBO and watch that one, everyone. Oh, yeah. And another one HBO brings to you is Lovecraft Country. That's <laughs> a, <laughs> it is still it is still current. It is on what we're season. It's going to be uh, episode six tonight, right? Episode six is tonight as we air this uh, or as we record this, because I think we've watched five episodes so far. Yes. And I have to say right now I am in love with Ruby. I love her character. I am just, and for, for those who don't know that Lovecraft Country is a, um, it's a horror sci-fi show on HBO. It speaks of a guy starting his journey, looking for his father in the Northern New England area, which is named, nicknamed Lovecraft Country. And, <laughs> and all of the fun that ensues with that so there that's the ties that it has to hp lovecraft and that's as far as it goes and the titular character atticus is a sci-fi fan and he does read these authors as well i can't remember who wrote um john carter saves the world and john carter goes to mars but that was a big uh sci-fi book in the 60s that he's currently reading and um, I also, yeah, I see. I finished the book, so I might have like <laughs> real spo- spoiler alert for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Edgar Rice Burroughs. It was based on Edgar ah, Rice Burroughs. There we go. Um. Okay. So, I first off, I think it's really interesting the setting in which it's told because there's a great change that's happening because this is really like. 50s right yes this is 50s this is actually 54 so we are dealing in the height of jim crow this is like a full 10 years before the um civil rights act of 64 went through so this is the first story that actually puts the jim crow south as a villain in itself to invoke fear and consistently exactly and i was just telling my mom this the other night about this is literally all the books that i've read and the horror that i've consumed in my lifetime and it's always been like a background thing you know just something that's kind of mentioned you know it'll say something about colored bathrooms or colored water fountains and that'll be it nothing has ever really like concentrated that fear on Jim Crow itself, you know, making that a villain, so to speak. That's how it felt like to me. I think it's interesting because the characters, it also really reflects on them too. Cause Tick came back from Tick is Atticus and he came back from the Korean war and he's all damaged by that. And his uncle is basically a scout 
who drives and George. writes reports for the Green Book, which is the famous book that was used by, um, by people Black people up. to travel and to know what establishments serve Black people during that time. And this right. was a value, invaluable resource. I mean, it was liter a literal survival guide, where to right. travel, where to go to, where not to go to. Where um, the sundown towns were and sundown towns, they, they show that as well, you know, get out of it. If you are any type of black or any minority they don't like, get the hell out of there or they feel it's their right to dispose of you in their woods. I, I That shit is scary. I, right. I just, oh, it's horrifying. And it unfortunately, it, I mean, it's... It, to me, you know, this is not the stuff that they teach, that they taught me in high school, mm -hmm. you know? So there's a lot that I learn about this history from TV that I didn't necessarily know. Like, I admit, I was one of the people who watched Watchmen and then learned about Tulsa mm -hmm. and learned how that happened. And um, then learning about sundown towns i remember meeting friends in texas and learning about a town in texas that had a billboard that said don't let the sun set on your black ass when it goes dark mm -hmm. and this was in the 2000s you oh, know geez. so this is like a horrifying concept because oh my god it's literally unsafe for people to be out and about in in the world and here we see it right um right but here what's interesting is it's even though every episode seems to have a different supernatural villain, the mm -hmm. overall villain of the story is white supremacy. It's the yes. white cops, the white neighbors, the white attitudes. And I like how they, I like how they present, you know, mm -hmm. the reason that, you know, white supremacy exists is because of these families that was able to get a hold of this old ancient magic and create this sort of Illuminati, uh, a society, you know, basically pulling the strings within their little area, you know, owning the cops and all of that. I thought having that institutionalized aspect of it too was a bit scary, or is it just the way that I think of things? <laughs> I mean, it is an institution and it is scary, so I really can't blame you, you know? That, that shit was just, oh. But I, I think it's brilliant. And so far, like with the book, the 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 book so far, the it's going according to the book. But since I finished it, you know, hey, they do win. They win. I mean, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, um, but can we let's talk about some of the episodes that we've seen so far, because I mean, we have a haunted house. We have uh, a creepy daughter who is like, I think, representative of all of the white feminists who really will, they want liberation for women, but will throw black women under the bus and black men under the bus to do it right. um, in the character of uh, Christina. Um, there's you know, you have your like damaged alcoholic father uh, in a role being played by Michael K. Williams. Who's, His character's name, I believe, is Montrose. Yes, Montrose. And who is brilliant, by the way. He's amazing in everything. I know, right? I still, he would still always be Omar to me. 
<laughs> always, always. Yeah, but... he will always be Omar. Omar is an icon. The first episode is where they go to explore the so-called Lovecraft country because Tick is looking for evidence of where his father is. Uh, and he believes that his father found something in this area. And that's where they go. And they encounter scary, horrifying monsters that may or may not also be vampire zombies. Right. Because we did see that cop turn. And so they were like vampire on steroids, really. Right. And keep in mind, the way that they put the two things together, the first villain is the white cops. Mm -hmm. The second villain is the monsters. Right. And so they get to the mysterious, at the end of that episode, they get to the end at the mysterious mansion and they don't remember how they get there after fighting these monsters and all of that. And then they suddenly have everything that they want. See, even my dog is like, wow, living in this fantasy house where everything that I ever wanted could be wanted. there. A room it's full here. of books. Books, you know, their favorite books. Their, their favorite, favorite books. books. The clothes and that fit them very well. And the foods that they like. Right. And so they start to get suspicious that, you know, well, why do they want to keep us here? And then this is the episode where we find out about the sons of Adam and how Atticus is a descendant from the founder of the sons of Adam and how they've been looking for him for all this time. And that's why they took Montrose to lure him there and mm -hmm. that they need him for a ceremony. And if they allow him to, allow them to conduct the ceremony they will let them go and they will be on their way right um so of course they need to exploit him because as it turns out his mother was one of the slaves that had worked for the family mm -hmm. and that um they they knew that the master was uh quote very kind to his slaves which was code for rape um, and so in being a product of that, he ended up having some magical powers and his mother ends up being like represented in the vision that he has. Um, and you see her again in a later episode and it's still unclear to us what that means. Uh, right. But it just goes to suggest that something much larger and much more significant is happening here and that Tick and, and his power is really a key to it. And can I just say in terms of, of the genre of the story, I didn't know what to expect when I was first watching it. And like many shows that deal with racism in a way that's really frank, I expected something that was going to be a lot heavier, oh, a yeah. lot more dense, a lot more, you know, a lot more dark. No, this is really pulpy. It's Very. really actually like, it's kind of like where, whereas other stories would be set in like the racist, you know, South and just be like, yeah, yeah, everything's really racist and it's really terrible. Like the end. You know? Right. In HP, HP, in um, Lovecraft Country, it's more like, yeah, everything's racist. And also we have all the cell stuff going on. And it's also very magic is real. Good luck. Right. 
it's very it, there's something matter of fact about it that I think is kind of refreshing because you know instead of treating it like we have to treat this with the utmost gravity there are moments where it lets itself be a little ridiculous in ways that I really enjoy <laughs> oh yeah and at the end of this episode we find out that uh the head what is his name the the Braithwaite he is killed in the ceremony oh yeah 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 as they're performing it and it was a double cross by christina mm -hmm. she gave him the word to speak during that uh she gave atticus the word to speak during the ceremony and that i don't know how that hampered the ceremony but it did and all of the members sons adam members that were there including her father were blown to dust so yay she atticus, eliminated the patriarchy yes atticus and letitia and george they leave that night and actually no uh george dies at the end of this episode george wow. dies because they they find i think it might be the next episode where they they actually find montrose who was pissed that they came to get him by the way because oh. he was all like he I was thought already I was gonna find my own way out. Yeah. He was already he had dug himself out of the little cell they had put him in already by the time they had come to rescue and figured by the time they figured out where Montrose was being held. And he had already dug out. He was highly pissed that they were there and they got caught. And this is where uh George is shot. Right. And um, Letitia is shot as well. Right, but she's allowed to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, and so so what happens after that is really a result of the conflicts that occur among the family, as well as trying to figure out, like, what are these forces that seem to be puppeteering in their lives? What is Christina doing? And what is she trying to accomplish? And it has something to do with the pages of this book that they can then, um, you know... Uh, figure out what the pages mean and then get some more magic words to use right um, and that she's spells and command this magic so and so she kind of becomes an invisible hand that gives letty a huge inheritance that ruby her sister does not have access to that letty then uses to buy a house and then that causes friction between them um uh -huh. that there's you know they're the house that they wanted her to buy. It turns out to be the house that haunted. might have it hidden underneath. And it's haunted. Um, haunted. They and... had to exercise a ghost out of there. Right. Because that's what you do when you buy a house. You know, exactly. I know when I buy a house, I'm going to need, you know, a Santera or someone who practices voodoo to come and put blood on my door just to make sure the spirits don't enter. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want my haunted house to, to, to scare the shit out of me. Oh, no. And, and we also find out with Letty's purchase of this home that is also further manipulation from the Braithwaites. Right. And how they have a hand because they know who's haunting the house, who was a former Sons of Adam member, Winthrop, Ephraim, Ephraim Winthrop. And you find out later that uh, Ephraim was also trying to seek the pages, uh, the book of names in order to create his own spells. And he fucked up and ended up killing himself. And he's the one who inhabits the house. So he 
has, they believe, and well, actually in the book, they believe that he had the pages. So they set up the manipulation for Letitia to buy this house. In the words of the way they presented the manipulation was they played on her wanting to uh, pioneer. And pioneering in those times was when Black families moved into white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So, and so you have also, again, the threat of those white people who are neighbors who show up with baseball bats or they've been sneaking into the house to mess with the mess with the boiler. And they're really trying to make it very hard for Letty and for all of her boarders to stay in this home. Right. First night off when they find out that a black family has moved into this house, they park a car in front and tie a brick to the horn. So there's this horn blaring at all times. And it really shows the psychological torture that were methods that were used. It makes that very visible in a way that um, I don't think I've ever really seen before. I certainly have it being, you know, in my white bubble that we, I wasn't familiar with all of that. And when you see what it actually looks like, uh, it's it's kind of a window into something that as a white person, you wouldn't really understand. Um, seeing just how brutal and how conniving just neighbors were, much less the police. Right. Right. And then we get into the episode. First off, can we talk about the two-spirit character? Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, the two spirit character were not there yet because after they exercise the ghost from the house and we find out that they were manipulated in order to exercise it, then we find out, oh, we need you to go get these pages and we know where he has them hidden. So these pages are hidden at a museum that Winthrop used to uh, curate and own and had built some weird tunnel and passageway. Think some Indiana Jones type stuff. This is legit like a Skyrim cairn or like an underground palace or even one of like the Dwemer palaces in Skyrim. If you're a nerd like me and you've played Skyrim, right. like, you know, there's secret doors and traps and elevators and all a water trap that like the water's going to keep rising and you have to get out before it, you know, it drowns you. Um, it right. was very all, cool. Yeah. All based on the, the, uh, the, the moon and the moon rising of the tides. It was fabulous. So we find out where uh, the pages are hidden. And as they come into this tomb and we were seeing mummies and all types of mummified native Americans, one starts to come to life. And we see it's a two-spirit character. And she begins to describe how she was cursed because she knew the language of Adam, which is what the language, the, the book of uh, names is coded in. She mm. knew the language because she and her people resided near a cave in which these uh, the language was written in the caves. So when uh, Winthrop came to her people because they knew that they had had access to this cave, they were also helping interpret this language to them. And when they found out, well, when the Native Americans found out what type of 
ravenous people they are, just forever hungry. I believe that's the way she described it. And she refused to translate any further than he killed her whole family and cursed her to guard these pages. It was it was terribly sad. And then, <laughs> and then as we, we find out all this history from this two-spirit character, then they remove the pages. And of course, the water starts to rise in and it becomes a death trap and all of them have to get out. So Montrose and Letty, the two-spirit character, I can't remember what the character's name was. I can't either. And um, they get out of there and come to find out after they leave the tomb, the character has another curse on her. She's a siren. So every time she speaks, she admits a loud, piercing howl. So they knock her out and they take her back to the house and they try to figure out what to do with her. And they figure out, well, we have the pages and now we have a translator. Maybe we can get her to trust us in order to translate these, these uh, pages so we can use the magic for ourselves. I found that character really strange hmm. because I guess I don't understand why the two-spirit identity was included. It didn't I seem to serve a purpose it that that character does not exist in the book oh so does not exist that was one of my critiques of that it, was an addition right because this character is there this character is two-spirit this character uh character has a visible penis and um the the character defines their spirit um as the first thing that they do is mm -hmm. to define how they are the spirit of both. And that makes them two spirit. And, you know, as, as good as the show is on other ways, I'm like, this is kind of a tokenistic thing. You're there's a reason why you're putting this in here. And it felt very insincere, mm -hmm. you know? And so that was something that I really wondered about. And now it's illuminating to know that that character never actually existed. Yeah. And the same with uh, Montrose's sexuality. That doesn't exist in the book either. The way that it's really? presented, yes, the way it's presented in the book, uh, Montrose is a survivor of the Tulsa riots. So and he's super damaged. He's got PTSD because he lost his father, his mother, his brother. Yes, in these riots. And that's where his anger and his uh, detachment comes from and his anger towards Atticus while he was growing up. Right. He has a lot of rage. He's very abusive. Um, so it seems like the, so far the series is placing, this is where Montrose's frustration has been because he's been closeted. That's why he's so frustrated and just angry and very standoffish to people. So is that like in contrast to his coming from Tulsa or is this in addition to his coming from Tulsa? It looks like it's in addition to coming from Tulsa because remember the part where right after they got back from uh, Artem and uh, Montrose had gotten really drunk and he burned the, the rules of the Sons of Adam. 
yeah. the book that George gave him. And he's like, and as it was burning, he's standing there and he's like, it smells like Tulsa. So yeah, I think they're going to include that as well. Mm -hmm. It's also, then I guess it makes it a little bit strange that they veered away from the book in order to include um, Montrose's sexuality, which I mean, nonetheless, I thought it was a very interesting scene, but it did feel a little out of yeah, place. I, I liked, I actually, it, it felt out of place, but I liked the way they did it. I mean, me too. It reminded me almost like the video from Madonna's Deeper and Deeper, you know, or like just the, the sense of like, I'm, I'm so stuck. I'm so stuck. I'm so stuck. And then kind of letting your hair down and being able to go and dance and be yourself and, you know, seeing the, the drag queens around and people who are just openly gay. I mean, I can get, I know how, you know, powerful that can be for a person who's not comfortable in themselves and who's in a society that's not comfortable with who people are um but i think it is an interesting facet to montrose's character that he was closet gay this whole time and i wonder how that contributes to his relationship with tick because he had to have a relationship with a woman in order to have this son right you know right is that going to cause animosity because then it becomes glaringly clear to tick why the relationship between him and his mother didn't work right so i mean it's going to add a layer of complexity and i hope that it's a good complexity um and not like again something that they're adding without really using it for its full purpose and that's my only real critique of the show at the moment but it seems like they're setting up Montrose's character to he's secretive all around because, yeah, he has still yet to answer the question as to why he knows so much about this stuff. I understand you like to read, sir, but um, excuse me. <laughs> right. You, you know way too much about this. And why do you? He still hasn't explained that. Right. And why did he kill the two spirit character? What is his agenda? It's uh, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot of hidden agendas on the show that we're still not familiar with. And Montrose is again, is, is one of the most significant because they kind of trust him, but also they kind of don't. Mm -hmm. And so who is he really working for? You know, you have, again, these invisible hands, Christina's invisible hands operating and, and pulling strings. I mean, has she offered something to Montrose right. that, you know, her brother as well, William, and she right. starts, he starts pulling the strings with Ruby and Ruby being Natasha's <laughs> sister and offering her a chance to be a full fledged white woman. And her her character development so far has just been mind-blowing. I mean, being able to take your dream, which was her being able to work at the department store and giving it to her and her realizing just how small that is. And, and go ahead. I mean, can we just can we can we talk about the how the character, how Ruby is she's not involved in like the, the politics of anything. She just, you know, she's just kind of enjoying herself. She meets this, you know, creepy looking white guy and he promises her the world. And she's been around that block before. And I mean, the office offers her, he offers her a, a serum 
that um, transmogrifies her or changes her body. And it puts her in like the skin of a white woman that looks like um, a female Jason Bateman. And, yeah. and she immediately gets hired as an assistant manager at a store with a handsy manager and, you know, meets a, another young black woman who applied on a whim and got the job. But, you know, this girl is treated differently by all of the other women at the store. Um, and what happens is kind of her playing this role and experiencing it. And like really kind of enjoying it, mm -hmm. you know, like he offers her thousands of dollars that she could just go and do whatever she wants while she's wearing that second skin. And all she does is sit down and enjoy ice cream in the park Yep, because it's the little things that matter because she couldn't do that previously, you know? Yeah. And um, anyway, you the reaction of what happens, especially oh, towards the end. My gosh Ooh. yes the absolute revenge and her finding out just the behind the scenes in this department store you know and because at first there's a part where ruby is upset when she finds out the the black girl that they hired had no education and here ruby had all of these uh college certifications and things like that so it was refreshing for her to find out that the reason that she wasn't hired wasn't because of that was because, well, the manager is a pervy predator and was looking for people purely to prey on. Right. Uh, he, he wanted her because he had a fetish for, you know, dark skinned women. And that translated to how he acted when he would go visit the South side and be handsy with women out in the black clubs. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Ruby ended up seeing. Right. And I also thought it was funny too, when she approached the other women at the store, when she's in her white woman's skin and she still asked them, well, have you noticed has he been handsy with any of you? Oh no, he's a saint. So it's just weird. So did he sense that she was a black woman or what was that? Right, right. There's like that <laughs> that interesting kind of crossover. And it's just so funny to see this, this character um, who clearly is a black person in a white body and is talking to, talking about, um, being on the South side and talking about how you have to work harder, you have to work harder than everybody else. And this frustration coming out in a character that visibly you don't expect to see. Right. And it's like, yeah, because the, 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 the shop girl that was standing behind her as she was going on this rant, it, like what? <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think I really liked at the end how she used that to get her revenge because she basically takes advantage of the boss and then just assaults him with uh, her shoe. Oh, gives him the business with her uh, shoe. Oh. He has several. She tore him several new assholes, I think. Yeah, definitely. He's going to shit funny for years. And not only that, not only is that horror taking place, but she's changing back into Ruby as this is happening. 
So oh, and it's so gory. Yes, it it's is. Like skin falling off. Ugh. So even one, if this dude survives, nobody's gonna fucking believe that a white woman turned into a black woman and then proceeded to stab him several times in his ass. No one's <laughs> believing that. No. <laughs> But it was sure satisfying to watch. It that was some delicious violence. It was. <laughs> and her confidence stroll right up on out of there with them same shoes on was very, very refreshing. Very satisfying. And that Cardi B song playing. Ooh, yes. So what are your thoughts on Ruby's character, though, and on how she saw herself as a white person and as a black person, do you think that she's now more comfortable in her skin or is she going to have an identity crisis? I think she's now more comfortable in her skin. Now she's got a bigger and better clarity than she had before. I mean, think about it. Her, the one thing that she wanted to do was work at the department store and she worked there for what, a couple of days and realized one, this ain't it. Two, all this time that we've been sitting here as a, a culture, as black culture, just afraid of what white people are, what they do, and all of that. And you find out they're just fucked up. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. You know, there's no, I think it, 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 it took the mystique off of it for her. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, y'all just some disillusioned individuals. Y'all sit here and lie to yourselves all fucking day and make it everybody else's problem. And mm -hmm. I think it really clicked for her when they were hanging in the South Side joint and she's watching the white women eye the black guys, knowing that these same women, if they become irritated, will scream for a cop to have these guys fucked up. Yeah. And actually that, I mean, in the first moment of, of the show, when she's first in the black skin and we, uh, in the white skin, and we don't know yet really, like, I didn't know at first that that was her, um, but she's like crazy and she's out there and disheveled and the cops pull up because she's fallen. This young black boy is trying to help her up and the cops are threatening to beat the crap out of this kid. And she like is, is not understanding like, Oh my God, oh my I can God. just I can just say something back right now. I can just tell them to stop. You know, right. And they'll listen. They listen. And they'll oh. listen. Cause that's not a power that she had previously. Because, right. you know, you know, there's no voice that the cops are gonna listen to if you're a black person. Nope. No, but so. and I, I will say in the book, her revenge is a bit different. Her revenge involved um the lady, because it the set of circumstances are a bit different uh she is set up by one of her uh clients for theft and they said that she'd stolen a pair of pearl earrings and she had to spend christmas day in jail and she's let out and she's really pissed off and as she's attending she has no job she got fired and as she's attending Letitia's New Year's party, this is when she meets William Braithwaite. They go out and they spend the night together. And this is when he presents to her the serum. Well, first he showed her that he can do magic and then mm -hmm. presented the serum. She takes the serum, but she didn't remember taking the serum because she was drunk when she took the 
potion. Mm -hmm. So she wakes up in a wet bed and doesn't know why. And she's trying to figure out what the hell, you know, body doesn't feel, my body feels so different. What the heck? And she looks at herself in the mirror and she's trying not to go crazy. So as she's trying not to go crazy, she's telling herself, okay, you know, I can either roll with this or go nuts. So she decided to roll with it. So she puts on a dress and she goes out and she strolls and she's notating how different people are looking at her and all how her interactions are different. And in the book, she is a tall redhead, long flowing red hair and freckles and green eyes. So she, she, she's basking that in and she's taking in the, just how easy it is being around people. She started flirting with the cop, went to lunch with the cop just for the heck of it. Um, then she's sitting there deciding, damn, what can I do with my life right now? And as she's contemplating that, she walks past the Marshall Fields and the lady that set her up for stealing pearl earrings is walking in. So she follows her and she sees her browsing and everything. So she gets the idea. Take She takes the scarf. She puts it in the woman's bag, runs out of the store, goes to a cop and says, oh, my God, I'm assistant manager. And that woman in there is stealing. Oh, and also ask her where she got those earrings, too. And then she stands back. Right. The cop goes up to her and starts questioning her asking her where she got the scarf and she doesn't know where it came from. Then he starts pointing towards her earrings. Where'd you get those? And then this is when the lady just gets, she goes full Karen and starts <laughs> pushing the cop and the cop pushes her down, calls in for backup and proceeds to tussle with this white lady in the middle of Marshall Fields. So Ruby turns tail and runs out of the store talking about, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So that was her, her like revenge in that. And she's really growing into her own as, oh man, what can I do? And by the end of the book, uh, Ruby comes out actually on top in my opinion she manages to get like a lifetime supply of the serum and then in the epilogue she runs off to become a journalist oh okay i wonder what's going to happen in the series i have to wonder like what was um the 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 blonde guy's name the creepy blonde guy that's william right that's william in the book he's named caleb caleb um what was william's intention does what is his ultimate plan for her first off there is a reveal that Mm. he is actually christina Christina. Mm -hmm. so so there was some super secret lesbian action happening right there if you want to talk about consent and i may destroy you you know how is ruby supposed to feel about that yeah is she gonna continue with it is she gonna roll with it or is she just gonna be completely done you know is she pissed does she feel like this you know this was an assault because you know here she is she just basically banged a woman even though it was in a male body right oh so but what is her intention with her i mean these are these are users christina and caleb slash william are users they're using these people 
I you think know? it's a hostile takeover. How it's do you a, mean? It's a hostile takeover. Remember, we found out that there are 36 lodges. Oh. And all of these, and in the book, all of these lodges have different specialties headed by different people. They practice different types of magic. magic and they kind of work within like a loose democracy. Mm-hmm. And what they want to do is consolidate. They don't want the 36 lodges anymore. They want one lodge with one person at the head. Mm -hmm. So that's what they're trying to do. And they want to be the head of it. Right. And so in other words, they're, they're manipulating these people and abusing these people to help make it to the top. There you go. And I think that's an interesting commentary on how white people use black people and black culture in order to, you know, to meet their own ends. To meet their own goddamn ends. Yes. And critiques like that are really, you know, driving the the gut of the series. You know, that's basically where the themes are headed because, you know, whiteness is the greatest enemy, but it's also not their friend, even though it seems like they're helping. It's an exploitative help. It's conditional. Right. So anyway, three shows that or yeah. two two movie, two one movie and two shows, two shows. that are worth the watch and worth uh the critique uh for having really really strong themes um really really illuminating ideas um and though we didn't get to go that deep into like structural analyses and really put on the radical lens to it uh nonetheless they were really really entertaining and these are discussions that we would love to continue having about these shows and others indeed, indeed, so indeed. in thinking about uh headed back to where we were talking about cuties and talking about being kids we have our consciousness raising question of the week and so we're going to talk about puberty oh so how did you feel about your bodily changes your breasts body hair what happened the first time you got your period were you told what to expect beforehand was it a surprise? What attitudes did you encounter toward your bodily changes from your peers and from adults? <laughs> and thinking about Ami from Cuties, let's think about what it was like to be that age and have right. our CR. And I, with her starting her period and we got to see like what her support was and her support came from auntie you know telling her that oh well this marks the time and you're a woman now and in a couple of years you'll be wrapped in white and married to a man uh yeah would scare the hell out of me because remember when she saw the blood the first time she didn't know what it was so it wasn't like she was a kid waiting for it or knew what was happening. And that's, uh, uh, I think, depending on what culture you come from, that is knowledge that tends to be hidden from young girls. Mm -hmm. For me, I had a lot of knowledge about it because I was in, a, I had, there was a sex ed program that started in fourth grade, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I learned all about it. Um, I learned what a period was. So there were some girls that I remember knew before me 
And mm. I remember going into the girl's bathroom and a girl telling me, don't look in that toilet. You know, somebody got their period in the toilet. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't look, but I'm thinking to myself, what does that look like? And I'm just seeing like the dot at the end of a sentence in the toilet. And I'm like, right? is there a dot in there? <laughs> <They're> not- <laughs> you know, because I, I, I didn't know it was supposed to be blood, you right. know? Um, but when I finally learned about it, you know, my, my puberty was very atypical, you know, I didn't have my period when I was supposed to, and I ended up having to go on pills in order to have it, um, when I was older, when I was 16. Oh, okay. Um, but I did really get like the first one when I was 13 and, you know, it's awkward, you know, I was wearing leggings and the only pad I had was an overnight pad and you could see it. And I remember that being super awkward. Um, I mean, I, I knew I was going to expect some things. Um, it, 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 it I, was, I have, I it have was, to say that I didn't have, I didn't really have a negative experience around it. No, mine, mine was definitely, I, I would say mine was informative. My mother, it wasn't a surprise for one thing. My mom was really open when it came to stuff like that. So it was definitely not knowledge that was hidden. So I kind of was on the lookout for it, but was still surprised when it came. And I, it, mine came coupled with uh, painful cramps, just cramps that would just put you down. Like you can't function type of cramps. Oh, so that's rough. And it's kind of the shock of that really of damn is this what's gonna happen like once a month until i'm 60 holy shit that's not (laughs) cool i remember (laughs) counting like all right at a job how many sick days do i get or if i'm at school i'm like can i take off one day a month but wait it lasts longer than one day a month you know because the goal of course was to stay home because you don't want to be in school when that's happening Oh, or heaven, heaven forbid you be embarrassed that something leaked or you don't have a pad. I certainly had no idea how to use a tampon. No, I didn't start using tampons until I was an adult. And when I finally started using them, I was just like, oh, my God, I could have saved myself so much trauma when, <laughs> if I learned if I had used them earlier yeah i remember i bought a box of teen tampons that were like extra narrow and i just didn't know how they were supposed to work like i tried to use it and it was like like a nerf gun it was like bam (laughs) trying to trying to get the tampon out and inside there and i'm like what the fuck and i remember going to ask this girl in social studies class and she was like don't say it so loud (laughs) and uh i'm like shit i just don't know how to use a tampon um right so, so there was definitely some awkwardness about it, which like when I reflect on it now, like I hate that awkwardness, yeah, you know? know, like half the planet gets a period. Why is it so awkward for girls to talk about having a period? Exactly. You know, I'm now at 36 years old. I will shout my bleeding from the rooftops. Mm-hmm. I will free bleed if I want to. Mm-hmm. I, I talk very openly about it. You know, with my students, I talk openly about it. They're like, I, Miss, 
this I have my cycle. I have to go to the bathroom. I'm like, it's okay. You can just say the word. I'm a female too. I know exactly what you're talking about and you can talk to me and you don't need to feel bad about it or have a secret about it, right. you know, because it was always the secret. And if it girls got it, it was the secret. It was something that was happening in whispers. Yes. Like, no, I wish like if, if I have a kid and I, I have a daughter and she gets her first period, I want to have a period party. I want red balloons. <laughs> I want a cake that's in the shape of a giant overnight maxi pad. Instead of using cups, they'll use diva cups as shot glasses for the adults. Oh my. I, I mean, <laughs> we're going to just put red paint on our face and look like warriors and, you know, and just have some, some fun with our pelvises and just be mega female. <laughs> <laughs> and see and, and that that's where our shock lies you know as some as, as being girls raised in the united states where whereas ami's uh fear lied in the fact that oh you know i'm gonna be given to a man in a couple of years because this happened you know I remember an experience in Girl Scouts when we were talking about periods and I had learned that as soon as you get your period, you can get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then in fourth grade in, in sex ed class, I brought that up. I'm like, I learned that as soon as you get your period, you can get pregnant. And they were like, well, yeah, that could happen, but then you have to have sex first. And I was like, wait, I didn't know that part. You said I, didn't know that part. I, I thought you just got pregnant. Right. I didn't know about sex or what that was. <laughs> right. That that had to happen first before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I thought it was just like spontaneously period, make a baby, bam, yep. you yep. know? So there I am thinking I'm going to like have some human parthenogenesis happening in my uterus. Just surprise. You're in sixth grade and you have a baby now. I'm so glad that that's not the way that we reproduce. Thank you. Right. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Oof. But in terms of bodily changes, which is the third part of this question, you know, it's interesting when it at this question asks about attitudes about bodily changes, because I didn't really notice my bodily changes because I was always fat. Mm -hmm. So I always had fat boobs, you know, I suppose you would call them moobs, but as moobs. a kid, they what are they? Tubes? Did you say moobs? No, I, I, I did. What? <laughs> i mean but i wasn't a boy so i was a kid so what are they tubes like child boobs because i had tubes <laughs> I, I i don't know i don't know what you call it when you're just fat as a kid um so so the bodily changes like other people were talking about having boobs and stuff and i'm just like i don't see any of this because mm. it is all under donuts ah under donuts <laughs> under just under a layer of donuts and and pasta oh carbs carbs but yeah i mean it, as far as i think the differences are also an external as well like how people react to the kids i thought a scene that highlighted that was when they were in the museum and the they were approached ami and her friends were approached in the uh the museum by the security guards and they started doing the dancing and 
pop locking and twerking and stuff and how these guys were like, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. And then let them go on. I, I think a lot of that awareness, that bodily awareness too lies in that external stimuli, the male Ooh. attention. That's a good point. Cause I remember getting that male attention. I mean, walking down the street and getting honked at and being yes. like, why are you honking why, at me? I'm fat. On? You know, what are they honking at? Right. You know, or what, what did that comment mean? Like, cause I remember I was like 12 and I was walking down the street with uh, my stepfather and some guy yelled from across the street that I had a fat ass and I was like, why would somebody say that? Is it really what? And I remember just agonizing and just, yeah. Like, why would somebody say that? And now we realize now that. Now we get, oh, ew. Yeah. Yeah. And that's creepy. I mean, and that's average, right? I mean, that's the average age that girls start to experience or notice sexual attention from men, you know? Which right. just goes to show, you know, um, that Ami's experience, uh, we can critique it on that because the attention really was not from men in the film. That was something that was missing. October 11th, we're going to be bringing you a special recording. Kat and I are going to explore some of the issues around police abolition and some of the stuff that we found in the quest to abolish the police. Before we present our findings to you, we'd like to get some of your questions, thoughts, concerns around police abolition. Leave your comments and concerns and we will get into the topic of police abolition. See you then. All right. And thank you for listening. All righty. And tune in uh, two weeks from now and we'll get into some more radical discussion where we talk some more shit. Yeah, we're going to talk some more shit and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Later. I just, I just repeated the same thing as you did. <laughs> I don't give the shit. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Good night. Go watch TV. <laughs> All music by Technoax. T E K N O X.com. Used without permission and without knowledge, but they're okay with it. Except for Judy Brown. We don't have the rights to that one. <laughs>